According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again tonight in the book of Ephesians. We are in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, working our way through the second half of this chapter. I think uh, we've had three classes so far in this, uh, in this new paragraph since we wrapped up verses 1 through 10 a couple weeks ago. And uh, ready to get right back into it tonight. Also, Wednesday night is our question and answer night, so we want to get a microphone ready to go and uh, start taking some of those questions as well. Before we do any of that, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, committing our time for the glory of Jesus Christ, preparing our hearts for the authority of Bible doctrine. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you for your grace and faithfulness. We thank you for the truth of your word and for the blessings that your word provides, Father, not only with how it equips us and what we know, but also how it empowers us in what we do. Father, I thank you for the stability that your word provides, the, uh, the anchor that we're not tossed to and fro, we're not adrift, uh, especially in this present evil age, Father, in the darkness that seems to be growing darker and darker with each passing day so thank you that as the darkness grows darker our light shines brighter and uh, your truth is is sufficient so we thank you and praise you father asking for your blessing on our time of study tonight in the questions that are asked the answers that are given the word that studied open our eyes father this is this is deep stuff and uh you know it and you're you're bringing us through it father so i thank you for uh, for this time tonight i give you the praise and glory in jesus christ's name amen all right, before we do get to the Ephesians portion, I do want to take some Q&A. I have a pending question from a week ago already that was Josiah's, and I'm going to, Josiah's not actually here yet, so I'm going to hold off for one more week, even if he was here, I'm going to say one more week. Um, it's a question related to the Exodus and, and Moses and what he was told to do, and then his various interactions with Pharaoh, and um, I, th I think it's a longer answer than... Uh, I, I want to give his question uh, better credit than I can do tonight. So I'm going to take one more week on that and give the better answer uh, next week. So that means we're ready for some fresh questions tonight. Anything that's coming in across the YouTube channel or anything here from our, from our live studio audience. And feel free to go first as well because Jeremiah is not here with us tonight. So we can take some other questions this evening. All right, we'll come bring the microphone over to Doug. Doug, you get to be our leadoff hitter. Thank you. Pastor Bob, what's your go-to statement or verse to someone who's uh, sitting across the table from you who's a five-point Calvinist? <laughs> wow, yeah. Um, well, let me tell you, I've got a magic wand. I can just wave it and uh, solve all those all those problems yeah. you know honestly um i don't know there's one verse you can go to where would you begin so yeah i i, I um honestly i like philemon i like first peter five uh we were in first peter five we we hit it a little bit this morning too in the proverbs class um where he says shepherd the flock of god among you exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God. And, and you know that's a, that's a big deal because I colored that yellow years ago and it's still yellow. 
Um, I, I think that phrase communicates a number of things, not just for shepherding, but for giving. Second Corinthians 9, God loves a cheerful giver, that we can't be giving grudgingly or under compulsion, but as a man is purposed in his heart, so let him give. Uh, and then you have this passage here for shepherding. Again, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. And I think fundamentally, and, and when I talk to Calvinists and folks of this nature, I, I just... I want to ask them about this compulsion. Why do they think God is happy with compulsion when the, the Bible clearly says he's not? That he wants free will volition, that he wants the, the voluntary love and worship and service and everything that we're called to do. So this is a good verse here for not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And just ask them, you know, how, how do you reconcile that with your theology that makes God the author of sin makes God the one who forces us to do everything, he makes us believe, you know, and, and just start with that. Because I, I think the idea of compulsion, really, uh, I think it sits well. Um, also, by the way, if they're, if they're married, you've got another avenue you can talk about, too, with the idea of forced love. You know, that if you, if you force somebody to, to love you, is that, is that, what is that? You know, is that real? No, it's got to be voluntarily. And, uh, and that, I think that goes a long way, too. That's beautiful. Thank you. All right, you're welcome. But it won't happen sitting across the table. It's going to be a long project, I, I suspect. Yeah. Especially the ones that I've encountered in the past, too, that have been very committed, that have been very um, saturated in it for a long, long time, then they're very vested in defending that, I noticed. Yes, sir? Um, do you, I don't know how to put it, like uh, approve of uh, putting names to spirit, the the, the Spirit of an Ahab spirit, a Jezebel spirit, a Bubba spirit, a, you know, finding a lot of people doing that. It's kind of but, it's a trend, actually. Somebody must have written a book, and so now it's gotten popular uh, in, in circles. I think that's how that happens. The Bible talks about a spirit of jealousy, talks about a spirit of wrath, talks about a spirit of, uh, of lust. So you can find those phrases, and, and based on that, they are biblical expressions. I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, but some of that, when they talk about naming a name, some of that actually ventures into um, Kabbalah, it ventures into mysticism, and, and we don't want to go there, right? We're not naming names. And, and, and particularly if we think that it gives us a power over those spirits, right? Um, we just want to stay in fellowship, keep our armor on, rebuke those demons, whatever their names are, I don't care. Just be gone and, and don't come back kind of a thing. So... Um, does that answer the question? I really don't name those spirits in, in my prayers or, or any kind of personal interaction. Uh, the last time I was face-to-face -face with a demoniac, it, was, um, it just left me just ice cold, you know, because I knew I'm staring at this demoniac eyes, you know, face-to-face. -face. We were like three feet from each other. And, uh, and so I, I commanded him. I said, depart and never return. And, and I, I, I swear this, this man did a, almost like a military about face and off he started marching and I never saw him again. So uh, then I closed the church door and I went back to my office and started praying because <laughs> I just had this icy feeling that I was face to face with a, with a demoniac right there. So that was over in the, the old church building on Woodrow. But anyway, so yeah, I wouldn't try to name a name or do anything like that with those guys. Good question though. All right, other questions? Maury's got a question. I hope I say this right. Um, I believe this was in, it was right after talking about the royal family of God, but you went to Colossians 2, 
and I'm going to verse 9, because you didn't want anyone to be taken, he didn't want anyone to be taken captive through bad philosophies. Uh-huh. And then he goes on to explain, it says, for in him, meaning Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Yes. I wanted you to explain just one more time, because I thought the fullness were those who were his, the church. Correct. And, and yet, but this sentence seems to maybe be a little different. The fullness of deity dwells, and maybe he's just speaking about Christ here. Yeah, so yeah, we mentioned this um, on Sunday, and I, I think we're going to have more to study on this. We already addressed fullness a couple of times in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, and, and when we taught this in Colossians, I, I pointed out that there's more to study related to this. So see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Obviously, this is a mental captivity. This is when your, your mind is occupied with things that shouldn't be occupied. Uh, according to the elementary principles of the world. And that, that came up this morning as well. These are the stoicheia. These are, these are the fundamental building blocks of this fallen cosmos. And uh, rather than according to Christ, for in him... And this is where I've got to put a red exclamation point. I'm going to, I haven't done this yet, but I want, to, I want to label Colossians the way I labeled Ephesians, where every single in Christ statement is tagged with that red exclamation point. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. All the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And that's in Christ. And typically, as this passage is taught, I think most pastors, most commentators, they approach this from the idea of hypostatic union, that he is the God-man, that he's undiminished deity while still true humanity, united together in one person forever. And, and I don't dispute that. That is, that is factually, doctrinally correct. I'm just um, I'm wondering if that's what this verse is specifically driving at, or is there something beyond that that this verse is driving at? So when I started doing more fullness questions, I'm going to leave that right there, and I'm going to open up another window... I'm going to drag it down here. Can't do this with a print Bible, can you? And so I'm going to leave that fullness dwells in bodily form. And then in Ephesians 1.20, you might remember, um, or 23, I guess, the last verse of the chapter here. Yeah, so the Father brought about these things in Christ, seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, it says, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. But notice now, as the church is being defined, as the church universal, the whole body of Christ, not just Austin Bible Church, but the church universal, the whole body of Christ, and it's defined here, it says, which is his body, the fullness, the pleroma. So the more fullness applications we see, I'm starting to see more and more of those with ecclesia connections, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So you can think of Jesus as the filler, but it's the bride, it's the body that's the fullness. Okay? So you got plerao, you got pleroma, these are the verbs and the nouns that we're, we're dealing with there. So we are the body of Christ, we are the fullness of Christ. And that Ephesians, remember Ephesians is the sister letter to Colossians, and so when we read in Colossians, it's in him that all the fullness dwells bodily. I'm, uh, I'm going to be doing some more work on that. I, I really want to see the, 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 uh, the church and our dwelling as we dwell bodily, right? Because we are a body. And so we should dwell bodily. 
And that's, uh, I, I think it's a great connection. It's one I'm, I'm going to be doing some more work with moving forward. Okay. Thank you. All right, let's come forward here. And then we've got another one at the desk. But let's come up here to uh, Mr. Carpenter, please. Yeah, this uh, fullness that you're bringing up, is it connected to the James 1, 4, the perfect and complete, lacking nothing type idea? Uh, maybe. I'll have to see what the vocabulary is there in James 1, 4. So, because uh, you got Pleroma, and then um, let endurance have its perfect result. That's teleos, so that you may be teleos and holakleros, lacking in nothing. So it's not the same plan uh, are the ideas connected that we're becoming well, yeah yeah they're related there there's no question but it's not at the same not the same term and then uh, was there one at the desk with uh, youtube okay this is so inter dynamic this is interactive we're we're communicating on the web and somebody's asking questions Yes, this is from Wes, okay. and it is, what is the reason for the book of Daniel being written in the two different languages? Thanks. Okay, yeah, that's a great question. Thank you, Wes. So um, uh, Daniel starts off being written in Hebrew, and it closes in Hebrew, but in the middle, uh, right about chapter 2 through the end of chapter 7, it's, it's in Aramaic, which was the dominant Gentile language of that day and age. Uh, so dominant, in fact, that when Israel came back from Babylon, they actually brought that alphabet with them, and they converted all their scriptures to the Aramaic block script instead of the proto-Hebrew script that they had before the captivity. So I think it's significant. Um, beyond Daniel, you got stretches of, uh, of uh, Ezra, I think. Uh, you got some random verses in Jeremiah. You've got a few words here and there. There are other Aramaic portions of the Old Testament but, but really, Daniel's the one that has a lengthy, lengthy section, multiple chapters worth, from two to seven. That's, that's nearly half the book. So uh, I, I think it's extremely significant. Now, if you want to ask why or what's the purpose, um, we don't always have why answers to why questions, but um, it is the book that gives us the Gentile history of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome that shows us the, uh, the, the times of the Gentiles from when he, God chooses to vacate the Davidic throne, right? He takes, he takes Zedekiah right off of the Davidic throne, and he leaves the throne of David empty. It's still empty to this day. And when the throne of David is reseated, it's going to be reseated when, when Jesus Christ returns in the second advent and takes his seat uh, forever. And so that's what the book of Daniel is there for. Daniel gives us that Gentile uh, history as, as a prophetic revelation with a a statue uh, vision in chapter 2 and the beast vision of chapter 7. And so um, if I had to put a gun to my head and make me answer the why question, um, I'd say it was a significant portion uh, that he wanted in a Gentile language to address those, those Gentile issues in, in that book. And that may be the best I can do on that. Okay, and Josiah, welcome. I've already deferred your question from last week for one more week, but... You have something else tonight? I was just wondering, um, what were the what prophecy were the Magi reading that caused them to go and, and uh, search out uh, Jesus? I think it may have been, you know, written texts, uh, written passages from uh, Isaiah, Malachi, and Micah, Jeremiah. Could have been any number of things. We know Daniel was reading Jeremiah in Babylon, so there were written scrolls with uh, the Hebrew prophetic messages that were there. 
Uh, it's usually thought of that the Magi were descendants of the wise men that Daniel influenced in his day. Uh, so, I mean, think about the kind of impact you expect to have and then the kind of impact you might have 500 years after you're gone. Um, to me, that's mind-boggling. That uh, whatever legacy Daniel left behind him uh, and whatever that connection is with the Magi there, I think is it's there's something to it. And uh, I guess we'll find out when we get there. But... Um, yeah, they, they had no question. When they saw the star, they knew what that star signified. And, um, which means they had a body of teaching, perhaps, that, uh, that we're not aware of. A body of, of oral teaching or oral tradition or something uh, that enabled, enabled them to connect it to some of the star uh, prophecies from Deuteronomy or Numbers or things like that. I think Genesis has a star prophecy in the, the uh, Judah passage there. So Anyway. Does that answer your question on that? Yeah. I okay. was just wondering if, if there was maybe a connection be- between the Aramaic parts and, and um, yeah, Gentiles who would have been studying this. But, yeah. but yeah, I didn't I hear so. that. I'm sorry. Oh, I was wondering, because of the earlier question about why why Dan- a certain part of Daniel was in Aramaic, I, w- I was just wondering oh. if that was relevant, uh, if there, it was maybe written that way so that Gentiles like the Magi would be able to read that part. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Well, thank you for those. Well, uh, if I did not get to yours, uh, you can go first next week. How's that sound? Is that a deal? All right. Appreciate that. Let's go to Ephesians 2. And I'm going to pick right back up. And I think uh, I've taught it three times now um, <laughs> that this paragraph is not a repeat of verses 1 through 10. Okay? Quite clearly, verses 1 through 10 was a contrast between those that were dead, and those that are made alive in Christ. Verses 1 through 10 is all about getting saved. All about, the gen, uh, all about the unbelievers. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And that's the lost estate of, of Adamic humanity that needs a Savior. And uh, so I titled that paragraph, You Were Dead But God. And thankfully, every dead person, spiritually dead person, has provision that's been made, and they can believe in Jesus Christ, and they can be made alive. They can be made alive, they can be raised up, they can be seated together with Jesus Christ with this triple soon compound divine action that happens in the church age. And, uh, and, and that's the message of verses 1 through 10. How unbelievers get saved, they're not dead anymore, they're alive, and, and praise God. But when we get to 11 through 22, it's a different contrast. It uses the same concept, the same uh, imagery of back in the day versus now, right? It's a contrast of back then versus now. And that's very clearly because you have these terms formerly in verse 11, formerly. And in verse 13, formerly. But then we have the but now in Christ. Okay? And so, again, we have a juxtaposition. What's happening here? It's a contrast between the way things used to be and the way things are now. But that's really the, where the similarity stops between the earlier paragraph and this paragraph. Because the earlier paragraph, that juxtaposition of the then versus now, was in a salvific context, where it was describing salvation as what made the difference. Okay? In this contrast, it's not salvific, it is dispensational. It is a dispensational contrast. And so this formerly that's in view here is not talking to individuals 
about what they were like, what their individual uh, life was like as uh, per se, because it's a collective description of you, the Gentiles in the flesh. It's a corporate description. It's a description of all Gentile humanity. And this is, again, I need to get my plan of God chart up here so that we realize that the church has not always been here. Before the church started, Israel had the stewardship. And before Israel had the stewardship, the Gentiles had the stewardship. And even before Adam and Eve, the angels had a stewardship on the original earth, on the angelic earth. And so there has been a sequence of stewards on this planet, starting with the angels and then given to Adam and Eve and the the human descendants, the, the dispensation of the Gentiles. And then beginning with the call of Abraham, you have a new stewardship, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They become the chosen people and the dispensation of Israel is centered in their ministry as an earthly nation surrounded by all the Gentile nations. And and really, this now is the context for what Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is describing as formerly. Formerly. These are the former days that are being referenced in verses 11 through 22. And they're being contrasted with the now of the church. So the formerly was the dispensation of Israel, where the Gentiles were completely excluded, and the now is the church, where Jew and Gentile are brought together in one new man. So this is really the biggest idea, and if we, if we have this as a starting point, the rest of these verses are going to go so much easier for us uh, as far as that goes. So therefore remember, the salvation essay is now followed by a different contrast. This different contrast is not what it was like to be an unbeliever versus what, it, what it's like to be saved. This contrast is what was it like for the Gentiles before the church age? And what is it like now that Gentiles and Jews are being created into a new man in Christ? So that was then, this is now. And that's what verses 11 through 22 are taking us through. The contrast in this paragraph is the Jew-Gentile contrast and the glorious new man reality in Christ. And this is something that we're commanded to remember. We're commanded to remember. Nowhere in verses 1 through 10 were they commanded to remember what they were like as unbelievers. Okay? It's just kind of, it was what it was, and it was ugly, and we all used to be unbelievers, and now we're saved, and we're happy to be saved. But that, ver- that passage never commanded uh, the, the, the readers to remember uh, being spiritually dead. Here, though, we're being commanded to remember the differences between the former dispensation and the current dispensation. If I can paraphrase what we're looking at in these, in these verses. So remember formerly, but now, in Christ Jesus... You who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so that's a new position for the Gentiles that they never had in the dispensation of Israel. And that's what we're going to see. Because remember, in the dispensation of Israel, whether you're talking about the age of promise, the age of law, the age of the incarnation, or also, to be honest, moving forward after the church age, Israel has two more ages coming up, the age of the tribulation and the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. 
And in those future ages, just like with the past ages, the distinction between Jew and Gentile is, is a reality. Okay? It is absolutely a reality because they are, though that barrier is removed in Christ. That means church age. That means baptism of the Holy Spirit identified in Christ and the realities of what we have in the church age. And when, the, when the rapture takes us home, when you and I depart at the trumpet and the rapture takes us home, this body that we call the church, this, this positional truth reality of being in Christ, that's concluded. You've got to be very clear on that. The first person who gets saved after the rapture, even if it's just, you know, three twinklings of an eye later, okay, that's three twinklings too late because we're gone in one twinkling, okay, right? And we are raptured out of here and then, uh, you know, maybe somebody's looking around and sees all these clothes everywhere and these, you know, stuff that's left behind and they wonder why that beautiful purple car is just sitting there and there's no driver, you know. The first person who gets saved after the rapture becomes a believing Jew or a believing Gentile, as the case may be, and they are not, not a part of the church. They're not baptized into personal union with Jesus Christ. They don't receive the permanent indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, like you and I receive the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's like, almost like you could think of the clock being rolled back and it's, it's the Old Testament all over again related to the, uh, the dispensational realities uh, that existed before Pentecost, before the church began. So I'm going to reference this uh, timetable frequently through these verses. I think we're going to see the, the realities for what they are in these verses, and, uh, and I want to uh, make sure we're solid on these things. So the, um, the you that we're looking at here is different from the you in verse 1. Uh, in verse 1, remember, you were dead in, in your trespasses and sins, okay? And that's just a ge general you to every believer that Paul could be writing to that used to be an unbeliever. It applies to, to everybody. But this you, in verse 11, and verse 13, and all these verses here, this is a corporate collective you. The Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision by those called circumcision. Okay, so the Gentiles in the flesh... That's who he's addressing here. That's the, the yuhu of uh, uh, verses 11 through 22. Okay? Gentiles. Collectively, the Gentiles. And that makes all the difference in the world. So that you, collectively, Gentiles, as an estate, as an estate, were at that time separate from Christ. And we're going to go through all these Gentile disadvantages one by one. And we're going to illustrate how it has nothing to do with salvation. None of this is salvific. All of this is dispensational. And, uh, and I'm really glad for that. Let me just take one quick side trip. Once we get through chapter 2, we get into chapter 3. And again, it's you Gentiles. Uh, but there is a prayer that's offered in chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That's going to take some work. We're going to spend some time on that. And we're going to ask ourselves, how is humanity organized? And how is humanity organized not only in time, but also in eternity? What do these various houses have to look forward to in the resurrection? What are these various uh, 
Gentile houses, and of course the nation of Israel is unique, but all of these people groups and their identity, because he saves every tribe and tongue and nation, and what is their eternal destiny? So when, when Job is resurrected and he stands with all of the, uh, the Uzites, I don't know what they call themselves, but the man from Uz, right? His name was Job. And whatever his fellow Uzian citizens called themselves, Sit-Uzians or something, they, um, all of those people, and Bildad the Shuhite and the Namathite and all those people groups, God pays attention to these. He's designed these. He even invented their languages for them at, at Babel, and he scattered them abroad across the face of the earth. Some of these verses we're going to have coming up, and I think we need to uh, pay attention. So from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. That gets my attention. Likewise, when Jesus says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, if it were not so, I would have told you. Why does the Father's house need so many dwelling places? Because he's got them organized by families by families, okay? And this is where we start to examine the different elements of what we call um, ethnicity, right? You have ethnos for nations, okay? Broken down into tribes and clans and families. So, not just Israel. Israel's not the only people group on the world that God has uh, designated with boundaries, with times, with uh, inheritance, and uh, we should hit that, if not tonight, by Sunday at the latest. I think we'll start to see some of those principles as well. So let me back up again. Here's what we're dealing with. Formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh, called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. We have name-calling that's happening here. The circumcision is very uh, disparaging of the uncircumcision, so much so that this is what they call them by. Why don't you just call them Gentiles? <laughs> why don't you just call them, uh, why do you not look upon the fields and see that they're white unto the harvest? Jesus did, but the, the arrogant Jews, as this passage describes them, uh, viewed themselves as so superior, being the circumcision, and viewed the Gentiles as being so hopeless, calling them the uncircumcision. Why is this a, a pejorative term? So these are the things we're looking at. All right, so we covered main point one, we covered subpoint A, we covered subpoint B, the formerly versus the now. We demonstrated it is an entirely different contrast from the then and now contrast that we had in uh, verses one through ten. Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Okay. We even took the time to describe some pejorative uses, and it's got a long customary usage. Very frequently throughout the Old Testament, you would have Jewish people calling Philistines and Egyptians and another group, well, maybe not Egyptians. Actually, the Egyptians practiced a form of, they did practice circumcision in, in uh, not the way the Jews did, but nevertheless. Um, so we, we talked about uh, the parents of Samson. And she saw, he saw a good-looking Philistine girl and said, I want her, get her for me as a wife. And the parents were like, you want a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Why don't you want a wife from your own people and our relatives and things like that? Uh, also, David uh, said this uncircumcised Philistine when he went and killed Goliath. It was very common to use uncircumcised in a pejorative way. 
King Saul did not want to be left in the hands of the uncircumcised. That's why he asked his armor bearer to kill him and, uh, and things there. Uh, all of these, uh, if not overtly insulting, at the very least, there, there's something that's being communicated there when you choose that label for the folks that you're talking against. Even Peter in the New Testament, the book of Acts, and he got some criticism. Acts 11. When Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him. There's nothing better than, you know, coming home from a great missionary endeavor like he had in chapter 10. He had a tremendous ministry with Cornelius and the, and the, the Gentiles there. And imagine he's excited to get back home and tell everybody all about it, about the glory of God and great things that are going on. And instead, he comes up to Jerusalem and those who were circumcised took issue with him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. <laughs> yeah? Okay? And, and, you know, it's almost like, I mean, what great victory, what great ministry, and praise God for Cornelius and all the, the fruit that's born there, but they don't have the capacity to celebrate because they're just looking down their nose that you were eating with uncircumcised Gentiles. What are you doing, right? And it's... it's uh, how comparable is that to uh, Jesus doing all his miracles and then the, the religious Pharisees saying, well, you shouldn't do that on the Sabbath, right? You know, you should have waited till tomorrow to, to heal that poor woman that had been suffering for 12 years, okay? You know, why are you doing these things on the Sabbath? And they're so judgmental over the works of God, the glorious works of God that were being performed among them and all they can think about is, oh, you're breaking our Sabbath, in, uh, in their criticism of him. So here's these guys criticizing Peter. He went into uncircumcised men. And here's the thing. These aren't the religious Pharisees doing this. These are Judaistic Christians. These are the Jewish background Christians of the Jerusalem church. They had their hang-ups. And these are the issues they had to iron out in the first uh, couple decades of the church age. So Peter began speaking and proceeding to explain to them in orderly sequence and he just lays it out there. Anyway, he gives a good testimony. So all of these pejorative uses and any kind of pride that the circumc uh, circumcised might have, it's all entirely inappropriate for a lot of reasons. Even though, yes, it's got a long customary usage, doesn't mean you have to continue it or you shouldn't even be doing it uh, just because they did it back in the day. And I think there's principles here that are pretty interesting. Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 through 6, instead of being prideful, they should have been humbled. Their, their circumcised status was a mark of God's grace. That he didn't pick them because they were so worthy of being picked. That they weren't the chosen people because God just couldn't help himself. He looked down at humanity and said, oh my goodness, uh, I, I, just, I love those Jews. I'm, I can't help myself. I'm going to make them the chosen people. And we have the scripture that tells us this. Do not say in your heart, this is Deuteronomy uh, chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. That's why all the Canaanites are being swept away and why that land is being given to Israel. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land. 
It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He even told Abraham that. He said, your children are going to be slaves for 400 years, but I will punish these nations. Know then it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. And that's just flat out telling it like it is, letting the Jewish people know. So uh, remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. And in all these examples through all the wilderness wandering, and this is Deuteronomy. This is the Lord speaking to the second generation because the Exodus generation, uh, only you know, all of them have died off. It's Caleb and Joshua remaining to go into, uh, into the promised land. So it's not because uh, it's, the boasting is inappropriate. They were selected because of the grace of God. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. That's the same thing as our salvation. We can't boast in our salvation. Did we earn or deserve that? Obviously not. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. So lest no man should boast. Okay, We just got through with that in uh, verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2. Some of these other verses I really like. I love 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who regards you as superior... Isn't that a great rebuke? It's a great rhetorical question. For who, besides yourselves, because <laughs> you don't count, you know, you regard yourself as superior, well, who besides you regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? Okay? I mean, if all you have is by the grace of God, and all you are is by the grace of God, and all you do is by the grace of God, what, what prideful boasting can you possibly engage in at that point? What do you have that you did not receive? Very rhetorical and very obvious. There's nothing that you can claim that God did not give you in his grace. And if you did receive it, which obviously you did, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And this is so true. For all of us, we can make our own application, but back to this issue on the circumcised, calling the Gentiles uncircumcised, why is that an insult? Why, why is that something to boast in? Why is that something that marks you as superior? Because God gave you circumcision as a token of the Abrahamic covenant? And, and that's, that marks you as superior? You can boast over that? And you can denigrate the others that were not vested in that capacity? See? Um, it, it just, I think I said on Sunday, it's like insulting a, a man because he's never had a baby. Well, that didn't make any sense. You know, and there's not a man on earth that's ever had a baby. And, and why would that be insulting? To just call a, a man, a, a biological male, to call him uh, an, a non-childbearer. Uh, okay? And, it just, and so why is it insulting to call a Gentile uncircumcised? God didn't command him to be circumcised. He didn't give circumcision to them. Circumcision is for Israel, marking them as the heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. And so it's, it's, it's nonsensical, it's, it's, it's ludicrous, especially to be prideful over something that was given by grace in the first place. So if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? All the Jewish people, instead of boasting in circumcision, should just be humbled. Man, God selected us to be the covenant nation. And, and this, is our, this is our mark of, infer- of uh, yeah, not superiority, but the mark is the objects of God's grace. And, and praise God for that. 1 Corinthians 7.19 as well. Circumcision is nothing 
uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. All right? Don't, don't, don't take non-issues and turn them into issues when they really shouldn't be. All right? Of course, there's a whole context there in 1 Corinthians 7, but I think we understand it for what it is. So, as we deal with this and this pejorative use of, of circumcision, again, I would highlight the fact, who's doing the name-calling here? Who's doing the name-calling? You Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision. Who's calling them that? They're not calling themselves that. God's not calling them that. But it's Israel calling them that. It's the Jews calling them that. And, and the Jews are calling themselves circumcision. Why, are they, why did they select that label? Okay. Anyway, this is the issue here. And this is, uh, by the way, it was not only a, a mark of, of racial pride. It then became a wedge issue in the early church where uh, a lot of those Judaizers in the early church started insisting that uh, when Christians got saved, they had to be circumcised and they had to start following the law of Moses. And that's why you had the Acts 15 conference that hammered all that out and said, no, the church is not under the law. And these Gentile believers don't need to be circumcised. That's not... For the bride of Christ, that's not for the church. All right. So we have that pejorative use. Now, now we're getting into the meat of this. Remember. And I don't mind the, the repeating of the imperative remember. I think in context it fits. The imperative remember in verse 11 has a lot of extra stuff thrown in there before you get to the that. Okay? Remember that. What am I supposed to remember? Remember that. You were at that time, back in the former time that was introduced in verse 11. So prior to the church age, prior to the church age, you Gentiles, the estate of Gentiles, separated from Israel, what was that position? What was, what was it like for Gentiles before the church age? They could still get saved? Of course. Have you created a list yet of every Gentile uh, Old Testament believer that, that we can name from the Scriptures? There's more than a few. Okay, There's some good ones out there. I usually, my default is to think about Job or to think about Enoch or to think about, all, of course, everybody before Abraham, they were all Gentiles. But um, you got Uriah the Hittite, another great example. There's a Gentile believer. Ruth the Moabitess. Okay? You got um, Nebuchadnezzar. I believe Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. I think Cyrus gets saved. So there's a Babylonian, there's a Persian. And when all of these Gentiles got saved, you can even go through the mighty men of David and you can find some Edomites and you can find even an Ammonite that's mixed in there. And it's, it's remarkable, uh, these Gentile believers that the Old Testament speaks to. Now what happens to them when they do get saved? This is the question. And the essay here answers the fact that positionally, there's no in-Christ relationship yet. There's no, they're not baptized by the Holy Spirit. They're not identified with Christ. No Old Testament believer ever was. And so, what is that estate of the Gentiles before Christ? And this is what they're commanded to remember. And it's, it's quite a contrast. It's also useful to remember that... Um, I think we're spoiled by virtue of the fact that we're born 2,000 years after the church began. You know, so here we are as 20th century, 21st century uh, Christians, and for us, 
the, the Old Testament was ancient history. I mean, 2,000 years ago might as well be, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> Seemingly, okay? It was just way back, and we don't think about it. But consider when Ephesians is written, the people that, are, that Paul is writing to here are only 23 years into the church age. They're only 23 years after the crucifixion. From 33 A.D. to 56 A.D. Okay? Or, if you insist on going with the 62 A.D., if you really, really are, are vested in that Roman origin of Ephesians, then still, it's not that. It's, it's six extra years. Beyond the 23 would make it 29 years. That's still not a lot of time. Okay? Can we all remember where we were 29 years ago? Or 26 years ago? Assuming you're that age. <laughs> okay? All right. So remember, because this new thing of the church has not been around so long, and even the revelation of mystery doctrine is still ongoing. If you think about how long has Galatians been in print? How long has Colossians been in print? How long have these, these truths been put in Scripture? Not that long. And so the, uh, the, uh, the newness of the positional truth in Christ, it, it's worth celebrating and it's worth... Uh, studying, and that's why Paul's writing this paragraph, contrasting what used to be with how it is now. So prior to the creation of the church, Gentiles and Jews function in widely different realms. This is point F in the outline. Remember, my outlines are on the left, the Bible's on the right. Prior to the creation of the church, Gentiles and Jews function in widely different realms. So before the day of Pentecost in 33 AD, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descended and the church began, prior to the church, Gentiles and Jews function in widely different realms, identified by physical birth and entirely unrelated to any born-again salvation experience. That might take some time to chew on and consider Identified by physical birth. I'm going to show you a verse in Hebrews in, uh, a few points down. How far is it? When we, it's coming up. We're going, to, we're going to look at a passage here in Hebrews that talks about the, um, the physical requirements, the, that, which is why Jesus couldn't have been a priest according to the physical requirements of the Levitical priesthood because he wasn't a Levite. He was, he was from the tribe of Judah. And so uh, in the physical requirements, he, he couldn't be a priest. But he is a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, and that has entirely different requirements. The, the indestructible life that's mentioned in, in Hebrews. But physical birth, are you a Jew or are you a Gentile? And if you're physically Jewish, you're a part of that nation. All of these disadvantages that the Gentiles had were all advantages that the Jews had, whether they were saved or not. And we're going to go through these one by one, but you'll notice in verse 12, um, separate from Christ, without Christ. Every Gentile nation was separate from Christ because the promised Messiah was a Jewish Messiah. The promised Messiah was promised in the Hebrew Scriptures and promised to the Hebrew people, and he was born to the Hebrew people. Of the flesh, he was born a Jew. And so all the Gentile people groups were Christless. 
There was no Greek Messiah. There was no Roman Messiah. There was no Lydian Messiah or any other ethnicity that could have been present in Ephesus at this time. I think the bulk of them were, uh, were Anatolian Greeks. Okay? And they, their, god, their goddess was Artemis of the Ephesians, who wasn't really a god anyway, so <laughs> they were also godless. But excluded, uh, separate from Christ... Every Jewish person had a promised Messiah on the way. And that was true whether they were saved or not. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel or a citizen of the commonwealth of Israel. If they were born Jewish, that was their birthright, that was their inheritance, that was their family, clan, tribe, and nation. And so every Jewish person from Adam, from Abraham to, to the church age beginning, every Jewish person there was vested in the commonwealth of Israel. The polity, the politeia. We'll talk about the politics of Israel. But the Gentiles were alienated from the politics of, of Israel. The Jews were, were, uh, were native. Strangers to the covenants of promise. What, what, what Gentile nation could claim an unconditional covenant like the Abrahamic covenant or the Davidic covenant or the new covenant? None of them. The covenants were with Israel. Whether they were saved or not. The Jewish, even Jewish unbelievers, were still under the, the covenant uh, uh, statements that were made on behalf of Israel. Having no hope. What hope did the Gentile nations have? What was their eternal destiny? Could they, could they look forward to a kingdom that cannot be shaken? Could they look forward to... No, no Gentile nation could, only Israel. Israel had their future that was so guaranteed, even if he sent them off into captivity... They were still promised to be brought back because they had a hope. They had a future hope. He says, I have plans for you, plans for your welfare and your hope. That's Israel. No Gentile nation. And then without God in the world, the gods of the Gentiles were idols. The gods of the Gentiles were fallen angels posing as gods. They were demons. They were no, there's only one true God, and the one true God, creator of heaven and earth, is the God of Israel. Not the God of Ephesus, not the God of the Greeks, not the God of the Romans, not the God of the Egyptians. In fact, all of those Gentile nations, had uh, pagan nations, had uh, pantheons, multiple gods. You'd have all kinds of, it's like a, a soap opera with some of these gods and all the, the they were liars and cheats and thieves and rascals and it's just, uh, you know, you, you read Greek mythology with, with uh, Zeus and, and all these, you're like, man, these guys are lecherous and drunks and, and, and dirty, rotten, no good liars and, and all the rest. Not the God of Israel. Okay? The God of Israel is righteous and holy and, and uh, the creator God of the universe. And, and, and Israel was the only nation with a God in this world. As, we, as this description is making clear. And even a Jewish unbeliever, right? Judas Iscariot was an unbeliever. But he was Jewish. And so all of these disadvantages, he had all of these as his personal advantages, being racially Jewish. But he died and went to hell. All right. So this is what we're going to spell out. And, and I'm using this kind of as a, as a big picture, and then we'll get more detail under, under point two. So this is prior to the church. Okay, it's not currently the situation. Currently we have the now. 
where Jews and Gentiles are, are a new creation in Christ at the moment of salvation. The Jews were the chosen people, and they had every Jewish advantage regardless of whether they were even saved. The Gentile nations had every disadvantage, even when individuals among them happened to get saved. Okay, So Uriah the Hittite got saved. That does not place the Hittites into some kind of a redeemed category where all of a sudden now they have covenants and they have a Messiah and they have hope and they have uh, any of that. Okay, Because the estate of the Gentiles is unaffected just by individuals getting saved. So Gentile nations had every disadvantage. Now, what we're looking at here in Ephesians, Paul repeats this when he writes Romans. And he, he spells it out in Romans chapter 3, and, and we can take a look at this then. Remember the outline in Romans? Romans 1 was immoral depravity, all those Gentiles and the things they do. Romans 2 is moral depravity, religious depravity, with, uh, with the religious Jews and what they do. And you know what? They also needed a Savior. Whether you're morally depraved or immorally depraved or whatever, Jews and Gentiles all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and so we, we understand this. But still, there is an advantage. You might be tempted to say, well, there's no advantage. They're all sinners. We all need a Savior. That's true. But what advantage then has the Jew? Okay, glad you asked. Scripture has the answer here. What is the benefit of circumcision? Paul says, great in every respect. You know, just like I say, I wouldn't trade the church age for anything under the sun. The Apostle Paul was, was uh, so, um, he loved his people. He absolutely loved, he was very patriotic. He loved his kinsmen according to the flesh. He would even volunteer to lose his own salvation if he could, just to save his, his kinsmen. So what was their advantage? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. How about that? Okay, the Hebrew people with the Hebrew canon, with the Hebrew scriptures. No Gentile nation had that. Well, what, what written canon did the Gentiles have before Abraham? None. Job didn't have a Bible. Enoch didn't have a Bible. Noah didn't have a Bible. All of the, all of the, the Gentiles before uh, Abraham, before Moses, technically, Moses uh, gave the first books of the canon of scripture. But it was the Hebrews, it was the Jews that were entrusted with the oracles of God. And in fact, the entire canon of Scripture was the Hebrew canon, Hebrew and Aramaic canon of what we call the Old Testament until the church. And then a Greek canon would be added to the Hebrew canon. So this is a great advantage, entrusted with the oracles of God. So then the question, what then? If some do not believe... Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. So even though they had all of those advantages, you still have individual Jews that would not believe. Okay? There's other things that we talk about here too. If I get a little bit lower down, um, yeah, there's other elements here, but we'll hit some of those too. I think Romans 9 is another passage I want to go to that describes the great advantages that Israel has. We'll talk about some of those as well. So, that was then, but this is now. At that time, here's what you were. Here's what you were. Remember, you were at that time separate, alienated, strangers, hopeless, godless, 
Also, you were far off. You were far off. These are the uh, adjective descriptions we have in verses 12 and 13. Separate, alienated, strangers, hopeless, godless, and far off. That's the Gentile estate. Until the church age. Until the church age. This catalog of Gentile disadvantage has a similar catalog of Jewish advantage in Romans 9. Ah, here's where we get to the Romans. I knew it was coming up. Here's the Romans 9 parallel. And this is where Paul volunteers to go to hell. Paul volunteers. It's not possible, okay? But if it were possible, he would trade his salvation for the Jewish people. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is his desire, okay? Who are Israelites. Now look at these advantages. Who are my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. There's the commonwealth of Israel. There's the politeia, the citizenship, the politeia that they had. No Gentile had a, had a part in this politeia. Who are Israelites. To whom belongs the adoption as sons. That bothers some people because we have an adoption as well. But church adoption is not Israel's adoption. Don't confuse that. We dealt with that when we talked about election. They were elected. They were the chosen people. But they didn't have our election in Christ. Same thing with adoption. Also the glory. To whom belongs the glory? What Gentile nation ever had the Shekinah glory living in their capital? The Shekinah glory that guided them for 40 years in the wilderness. The Shekinah glory that, that could be approached by a high priest one day a year for a national atonement. No Gentile nation had any of that. Sometimes I think the demons motivated them to create these uh, substitutes. They, they created the uh, like the the, uh, the Oracle of Delphi, for example, was this mystical place to go to and get your answers and whatever, just a, a demonic centerpiece of things, okay? But no nation, no Gentile nation had the glory that Israel had. That's why it was so sad when Ezekiel saw that glory departing and said, it's gone, okay? The whole Ichabod thing's about. Also the covenants. The covenants are Israel's. And the giving of the law. Keep in mind, the covenants and the giving of the law are separate. And I think we do well if we keep the covenants limited to Abrahamic, Davidic, and New, and we don't lump in the Mosaic covenant, because it was conditional. The law was different than the unconditional covenants of Abraham, D David, and the New Covenant. I'll say more on that when we deal with the covenants in Ephesians 2. But what, what Gentile nations had such covenants? Did God call another nation besides Israel and, uh, and initiate a, 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 an unconditional covenant with them? Not, no, not at all. Only Israel. They are the covenant steward nation. The giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, all of these. These were Israel's unique blessings and no Gentile nation had any of them. No, not one. Whose are the fathers? Don't confuse the church fathers with Israel's fathers. Okay? The patriarchs were the Jewish patriarchs. The, whose are the fathers? Okay? What, what, they, what they identified with as their tribe went back to real people, the sons of, of Israel. 
Judah was a person before he was a tribe, right? And, and the, the Jewish people had the fathers in ways that you and I don't. Gen, no Gentile nation does. And from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Jesus didn't, the, the God, the word did not become flesh and dwell among the Ephesians. The word became flesh and dwelt among Israel. He came to his own and his own received him not. Okay, how sad is that? But from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? That's why the first item that's mentioned here is they are separate from Christ. The first item of their, of their um, being separate alienated strangers, hopeless and godless, is they are separate from Christ. He came to Israel according to the flesh. So when we come back on Sunday, this is what we're going to spell out. We're going to spell out separate from Christ, alienated from the polity of Israel, uh, strangers to the covenants of promise, not having hope, without God in this world. So we're going to go item by item and show all of those disadvantages that Gentiles had before the church age. And then, what's the provision in the church age? What's the provision once, once uh, the church age begins? It's not to put Gentiles under the Jewish covenants. It is not. That's not the remedy for being separate and uh, alienated and uh, strangers, hopeless, godless. It's not to take the Gentile estates and merge them into the Jewish estate. Not at all. Instead, is to create a whole new thing. To take Gentiles and Jews and create a new man in Christ, a heavenly citizenship. We have a polity that's so much greater than Israel's polity. We are of God's household, the royal family of God. And then we'll spell that out for you on Sunday as well. All right? Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for truth. Continue to work in these uh, lessons. Continue to open our eyes to these beautiful realities. And thank you, Father for the present age in which we live. I thank you for the body of Christ, the fullness of Christ that dwells bodily. I just thank you and praise you, Father. Keep, keep these studies going, that we can know them, we can appreciate them, and we can live them. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Christ's name. Amen.